0: Starting at verse 1, for the director of music, with stringed instruments, according to Sheminith, a psalm of David, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony, My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace.
1: Well, thank you so much, Lani. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Do keep that Bible reading open, and there's a short uh, outline on the inside of your notice sheets if you want to follow along. We're coming to the end end of our uh, short series in the book of Psalms, and I hope if you've been around uh, to hear some of these sermons, you found it very helpful. Uh, It's been good, hasn't it, to see the real, historical, flesh-and-blood David finding hope and joy in God, even when surrounded by enemies. And we've seen over and over again that King David's experience finds its fulfilment in King Jesus, and therefore we, as Jesus' people, can enter into that experience ourselves. We can pray these psalms too. But if it's hope and joy that we're after, we might find today's psalm at first to be quite a shock. After telling us in Psalms 3 and 4 that David can sleep soundly, he's able to sleep soundly in peace and safety, knowing the Lord's protection, now in Psalm 6 we find David at perhaps his, his lowest ebb. Look at verse 6 again. I am worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Now David cannot sleep. He is exhausted, but he finds no rest. Instead, he spends all night soaking his pillow with tears. He feels God is far from him. He is crying for him to return to deliver him. As we're going to see, he feels physically, emotionally, and spiritually weak. As well as that, this psalm is a little bit complicated to understand. That's because there are three things in this psalm that are related in a complicated way. First, there is God's wrath or displeasure. We see that in verse 1, don't we? O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Even though David doesn't seem to confess any particular sin in this psalm or say he's done anything wrong, yet the psalm begins with the threat of God's wrath, his displeasure. Second, we have suffering. David is clearly suffering very intensely in this psalm. And third, we have the presence of enemies, who turn up quite late in the psalm in verse 7, but are then the focus at the end of the psalm in verse 10. So three things, God's wrath, human suffering, and the presence of enemies. And it's not immediately clear how those things interrelate at this point in David's life. There are things we don't know about the setting of this psalm. Is David suffering because he has sinned in some way and he's experiencing God's discipline for it? Well, there's, there's evidence for that in the psalms and in David's life that has happened, that does happen. Or is he suffering at the hands of his enemies even though he hasn't done anything wrong? Again, plenty of evidence for that in David's life too. Are the enemies the cause of his suffering, or are they just making his suffering worse somehow? Is he in anguish because he feels God is far away from him, or is it the other way around? Does he feel that God is far away from him because of his anguish? It's difficult to know. We'll attempt to answer some of those as we go through, but at the risk of spoiling things, I think the ultimate answer is, it's complicated, The relationship between sin and suffering and enmity is not a neat thing we can tie up in a nice little bow. It's a complicated, complex interrelation. And so what do we have here this morning? We have a psalm which is full of anguish, full of weakness. And a psalm which is full of the complexities and complications of life. And yet not in spite of that, but because of that... I think this is a psalm that is here to show us the path to true hope and to true joy. We're going to see a true believer wrestle in the very depths of despair. And that tells us that anguish and pain and frailty are a normal part of life and a normal part of Christian life. And the complexity of the psalm, where we can't quite tell what the situation is, means that what we'll learn from the scripture today, I think, can apply to lots of real-life, complex situations with all their different nuances and tricky little corners. We're going to see that indeed there is a path to hope and joy even in the midst of suffering and anguish, and it's a path that goes through the suffering and anguish of King Jesus. Well, let's begin then by hearing David's cry of anguish. Let's read uh, verses 1 to 3 together again. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? It's clear that David is experiencing and describing here both physical and spiritual anguish. He's clearly physically not well. He cries out for healing in verse 2. He says he is faint. His very bones are in agony. In verse 5, he seems to be near death. Later in Israel's history, King Hezekiah was very physically sick. And when God healed him, he prayed a prayer which is very, very like this and might have been based on it. You can read that in Isaiah 38 this week if you like. There's, There's clearly a physical component to his anguish. But as well as that, and related to that somehow, is spiritual suffering. He wants God to come and heal him, to restore his fortunes, to bring him back to health. And yet at the moment, God does not seem to be answering that prayer. He cries out in verse 3 How long, how long will the suffering last? That is a cry that is repeated so often throughout the Bible. We hear it, for example, on the lips of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, who look at the long years of the persecution of Christians and cry out, How long? How long before there's going to be justice? It's the cry of many believers' hearts. Indeed, it's possibly the key question of the life of the believer. Life is complex and difficult and full of suffering, and yet we know that God has both the power and the intention to end that suffering. He can bring relief, and indeed he has promised to bring relief one day, so why not now? How long do we have to wait? It's an impassioned cry, a cry from the heart, for God to do what he has promised to do. I think on balance, that's why I don't think in this case that we should read verse 1, As David confessing specific sin. He he could be. In Psalm 38, David does use exactly those words as an introduction to a psalm where he is clearly confessing sin. And in that psalm, we see similar language to Psalm 6 to describe the anguish of guilt. Often, suffering and anguish can come from sin, unforgiven sin, unconfessed sin, and a sense of remaining unforgiven. But I don't think that's the case here. David doesn't, in the rest of this psalm, say he's done anything particularly wrong, that he's particularly confessing. I think, rather, this is a reflection of David's humility as he comes to God to beg him to act and to ask him for relief. You see, David's very clear that God is in charge of all suffering. Yes, God has the ability and the intention to end suffering, but in this world and in our lives... The Bible often talks about God allowing suffering or even bringing suffering into our lives. And when he does, there's always good reason for it. Suffering is not good, but God is so good and so powerful that he can use suffering for his good purposes in ways that are often completely above our comprehension. We can't always see what God is doing or why he's doing it, why he is allowing something to happen. And yet we know, the whole scripture testifies to it, that he's a good and kind God who is not malicious. And so when David comes to God in prayer to say to him, look, how long do I have to put up with this? How long before you act and relieve my suffering? He begins with words of submission, words of humility. Don't rebuke me, please, Lord. Don't discipline me for questioning what you're doing. David knows God, that God must have a good reason for this suffering. He can't see it, but he knows that there must be one. He knows that God's ways and his wisdom are so much higher than his, and so he doesn't want to approach God wagging his finger and telling him off and demanding answers. We see something similar in Genesis 16. When Abraham repeatedly asks whether God will spare Sodom and Gomorrah if a few righteous people can be found there, and every time he asks, he says, please don't be angry with me for asking this question, I who am but dust and ashes. You see, suffering brings with it a whole host of temptations, doesn't it? When we are suffering, so often we can become angry with the world, bitter even towards people who are trying to help us. And we can become entitled towards God, demanding relief, demanding answers, criticizing him and cursing him for bringing such pain into our lives. That was the response, if you remember, of Job's wife when her husband suffered so much. She suffered so much as well, of course. And yet Job refused to say that God had done anything wrong. In Job chapter 1, she says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job, even as he wrestled, even as he struggled to understand, even as he sought answers from God, maintained his humility before God, he would not curse him. He would not demand answers as an entitled human being. He remembered throughout that God was God and he was not. And David too remembers this. He remembers that in his anguish, which he believes that God is sovereign over, that God is still God's, and He is not. And so when he comes to ask for relief, he does so with humility, and he does so strikingly asking for grace. This, that in verse two, he says, "Be merciful to me." You get it again in verse nine, when he calls his prayer his cry for mercy. Now again, that, that could mean that he's sinned and he needs the grace of God to forgive him. But I think it's more likely that he is simply aware that whenever God brings relief of any kind of suffering, it will always be an act of grace. David is keenly aware that he is a sinner. And even if, if there is no specific sin that he has to repent of, yet he knows every good thing that he experiences is so much more than he deserves. And that includes relief from suffering, even innocent suffering. You see, there is no other power in this universe that can ultimately bring us relief from the anguish of this world. Now, don't mishear me when I say that. There are plenty of good things in this world that can aid us in our suffering. We're right to make use of them and to give thanks to God for them. But the eyes of faith see them as God's gracious gifts to an undeserving world tokens of his ongoing mercy and compassion towards a world that has turned its back on him. His grace is why things aren't worse than they are, if I can put it like that. And that is the ultimate hope for a final end to suffering, the mercy of God, his undeserved generosity and compassion. Perhaps that's why in these three verses, David uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, Lord, in capital letters in our versions, four times. That name was given to Israel when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt by his grace, by his compassion. And so David clings to that name, clings to that promise, clings to that character. The God who has revealed himself to have a character of compassion can be appealed to for compassion. For mercy, for grace. Humbly and reverently, yes. Not entitledly, not demandingly, if those are words. Because he is God and we are not. Because he does not exist for our benefit. Because we are sinful and he is holy. Yet as we saw last week, for those who love his name, he remains graciously bent towards us, listening to our prayers, ready to hear our cries of anguish. And that's why David's cry of anguish turns into a prayer for deliverance in verses four to seven. You see, God might seem rather distant just now, but David knows that only he can bring lasting relief from his pain and that only he can save him from death. Look at verse four with me, Psalm six, verse four. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me, Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from his grave? Once again, we've seen it time and time again in these psalms, David appeals to God's covenant love. It's that word hesed again, his gracious commitment to his people. But we might find uh, the basis of David's prayer to be rather odd. He wants God to deliver him from death He feels close to dying either from physical sickness or from the threat of enemies or or something else. As we noted before, it's complicated. But whatever the threat, he asks God to deliver him from death because, verse 5, death is a place where there's no memory of God and no praise of God. He uses a specific Hebrew word. You can see it if you've got one of our Bibles. You see it's footnoted there. It's the Hebrew word sheol which doesn't really mean heaven or hell, really. It's simply the place of the dead, the the realm of uh, the dead. It literally means the no place, the nothing place, the realm where there is no life. And he says, there's no point me going there because I can't praise you from there. Now, we've got to be a bit careful here from reading uh, reading this as Christian people, as people who are living on this side of Jesus' resurrection. We can make a couple of mistakes reading this verse first mistake is to think that perhaps David doesn't really have the right view of death. We're perhaps used to the later prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, giving wonderful descriptions of new creation, resurrection, hope. We're used to New Testament authors like Paul saying, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul seems almost to be looking forward to death, because then he will go and get to, uh, get to be with Jesus. And yet David here says there's nothing to look forward to, no praise of God. And so some people have read this passage and think, well, clearly, David's just living at a time in Israel's history when resurrection hope didn't exist. What happens after death wasn't a concern for them at all. They were just living for this life. They had no idea what was going on after death. But that's a mistake, I think. Yes, the details of their resurrection hope weren't revealed to Israel until the later prophets and that hope wasn't fulfilled until the resurrection of Jesus. But David certainly did have resurrection hope. We can see it in Psalm 16 where he says that God will not abandon his Holy One to the grave. And Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that many Old Testament men and women lived with the expectation of resurrection and of the heavenly city to come. But the second mistake we can make in this verse is jumping too quickly to that resurrection hope. Now that Jesus has conquered death, we can too easily make the same mistake as the rest of our world by sentimentalizing it. Many in our world take the sting out of death, don't they, by downplaying it, sugarcoating it, speaking in euphemisms about it, writing soppy poetry about it, until death appears as a natural part of life, as as, as natural a part of life as taking a nap or moving to the next room or passing on to a new realm or whatever it is. And we can start thinking about death that way even as Christian people. Now that Jesus really has taken this thing out of death, we'll come back to that, we can become quite complacent about it. We can forget the horror of it. And so let David remind you of the awfulness of death. It is not natural. It only came into our world as a punishment for sin. The Creator God of life and love and variety and abundance sentenced sinners to an existence without any of those things. A place where God is not even remembered, where all the goodness and joy of the created order seems like a distant dream a place where we can no longer praise God, where we can no longer do that thing we were created to do, to live in joyful and harmonious relationship with the God who gives everything good. You see, David might feel a bit far from God at the moment, but he knows that death really is a full and final separation from God. And so before we get to the resurrection hope, and we will, Just let's feel the horror and the awfulness of that for a minute, shall we? David is currently sleepless and overwhelmed, drenching his pillow with tears, verse six. What if that lasted forever and never ceased? He's looking for help, but because of his grief and because of his enemies, his sight is becoming clouded and dim, verse seven. What if the cavalry never arrived? What if help never came? what if the answer to verse 3 how long o oh lord how long was forever that is the awful reality that david wants saving from and that is i think what his enemies want to see him face the mention of enemies in verse 7 reminds us that david has been in battle throughout all these psalms he's faced people who've been watching to see him fail who've worked against him and plotted his downfall, and who have accused him, crucially, of being out of step with God. That was the accusation right at the beginning of the series. Do you remember if you were here? In Psalm 3 verse 2, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. David's got lots of people around him who are looking at him and seeing the calamities that he's facing as evidence that God is against him that he is actually separated from God and that he will remain separated from God forever. And yet, even though David is right on the brink of despair, even as he stares through tear-filled eyes at his bedroom ceiling, longing for the morning to come, even as he fears that help will never arrive, even as he cries out, how long do I have to put up with this? He is crying out to the God of compassion and grace. He's crying out to the God of covenant commitment. He is crying out to the God who can be trusted even if his ways can't always be understood. David is so weak at the moment, that's all he can do is cry out to God. He hasn't got anything else, yet that is enough. Because even at his very lowest ebb, David is calling to the God who hears. God who hears. I'm sure you'll have heard when the psalm uh, was read by Lani that there is a sudden and spectacular change in verse 8. In verses 1 to 7, David is almost a broken man, isn't he? Wasting away, physically weak, spiritually questioning, emotionally fragile, exhausted, sleepless. Sleepless. But in verse 8, he suddenly comes roaring back like a lion. Verse 8, Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. And we read that and we think, well, where did that come from? Well, the answer's right there in front of us. It comes from the sure knowledge that he is heard by the Lord. Not a tear that he shed in the dark reaches of the night has gone unnoticed by God. Not a cry has gone unhurt. The God of the universe is the God who hears the cries of the king. And so the enemies who worked for his downfall and who accused him of being out of step with God are wrong. And they will soon be seen to be wrong. If you have a more uh, literal translation than the ones we have in our pews, you may notice something striking about the language David employs about his enemies here. The same Hebrew word appears uh, three times in this passage. In verse 2, he talks about his bones being in agony. In verse 3, he says his soul is in anguish. It's actually the same uh, Hebrew word. It's a word that speaks of great trouble or dismay or horror. Well, David says that that same fate will be visited on his enemies in verse 10. They will be dismayed, in agony, in anguish. The enemies who condemned David as being out of step with God are actually the ones who are out of step with God, who are facing the terror of death and separation from him. It is those who try to heap shame on David who will end up being themselves ashamed. And it's David's, who will be delivered but here's the thing in this psalm that deliverance still appears to be in the future yes god has heard his prayer but there's nothing i don't think that explicitly says that david's suffering has come to an end yet certainly the enemies are actually still at large their downfall is prophesied but there's not a reality just yet And yet the knowledge of his prayers being heard gives David confidence that deliverance will come. That he does have hope, even in the face of death. That the accusation against him is false. That even as he crests the waves of joy and plunges the troughs of despair in this life, that God is for him, his God is for him, and he is the God who hears. Well, as we leave uh, David and we conclude our series, we must once again consider how this psalm points us forward to his greater son, the Lord Jesus. Because although David and Jesus did walk different paths, yet these are the psalms of the Son of God King, the Psalm 2 King, and Jesus ultimately is that King. He is the Psalm 2 King, and yet if you know the story of Jesus you'll immediately be able to bring to mind how his journey was also marked with Psalm 6 grief. Remember, Jesus was surrounded by enemies. Enemies who accused him of being a blasphemer, a heretic, a sinner, someone who was under God's judgment. In Matthew 7, he prophesied that one day he would say to those enemies, depart from me all you workers of evil. He took the words of this psalm on his lips and yet, those enemies continued to plague him throughout his life. On the eve of his arrest, he said to his disciples that he was greatly troubled, dismayed, in agony, in anguish. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as others slept, remember, Jesus was able to sleep in the stern of a boat in a thunderstorm. And yet, in the Garden of Gethsemane, while his disciples slept, Jesus stayed up all night unable to sleep, crying out with tears for deliverance from the awfulness of death and separation from his father God. And yet he approached God as David did with the utmost humility, saying at the last, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus was put to death, not just physical death, but that spiritual death that comes from facing the wrath of God on sin, that utter and total anguish. And yet he came roaring back like a lion. From that place of death, that shale, that no place, the place where you go and you never come back, he came back. He re-emerged. And therefore he really has taken away the sting of death. Not by sentimentalizing it, not by sugarcoating it, but by defeating it. By taking away the wrath of God, the punishment of God that leads to death, he has made it possible for sinners like you and me to face even death with confidence. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's lots in that passage that needs a bit of explaining, but for now, we'll leave most of it. Do you see the point that because Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 6... He is the one who's offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. He's been heard. He's been saved from death. Therefore, he is now the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, all who align themselves with the risen Son of God, King. Now, does that mean that those who follow Jesus are free from experiences like Psalm 6 in this life? Well, of course not the complex interplay of sin and suffering and physical weakness and external pressures, the reality of life in this broken and battered world means that physical, mental, emotional and spiritual turmoil is still a reality for true believers in Jesus. We walk in the paths of the king and if David went through it and Jesus went through it, then we may well go through it too. But in the midst of the anguish and despair we might face, we have a bright and shining hope that perhaps David even only saw very dimly. That because Jesus has faced the greatest anguish, the ultimate anguish, then there is hope to the end, for the end of the anguish that we face. And so what does that mean? It means we can humbly turn to God in the midst of our despair and our anguish, knowing that he hears our cries, all because of Jesus We do not need to fear that he will reject our honest and humble questioning. And we can cry out, how long, knowing that the answer will be, not forever, not forever. And we can look forward with confidence beyond the awfulness of death to the sure hope of the new creation, where we will hear this proclamation from the throne of God, from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their gods. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I'll give you a moment to reflect on that. And then we're going to read the words of Psalm 6 together to conclude.